An older couple is lying in bed one morning, having just awakened from a good night's sleep. He takes her hand and she responds, Don't touch me. Why not? He asks. She answers back, Because I'm dead. The husband says, what are you talking about? We're both lying here in bed together and talking to one another. She says, no, I'm definitely dead. He insists, you're not dead? What in the world makes you think you're dead? Because I woke up this morning, she says, and nothing hurts. Wouldn't that be nice? Some of you can relate. Wake up in the morning, no aches, no pains, no joint problems. Ah, almost sounds too good to be true. No sorrow, no more crying, no more death. Too good to be true. But isn't this the hope that we hold on to as followers of Jesus Christ? Isn't this the promise throughout this whole book? Correct me if I'm wrong, but you and I are in need of hope. With all the junk that happens to us and around us every day, all the pain, the suffering, the sorrow, isn't this why we continue to go back week after week, day after day to this book right here? To search its pages. We are searching and needing the reminder that you and I are in a long line of people who have found strength in someone, something much larger than themselves. A long line of people who threw themselves into following Jesus. And in their following, they found a peace and a hope they had never known before. And nowhere is this hope, especially the hope of eternal life, the ultimate victory over everything that brings pain and suffering, painted more clearly than in the letter that we call the book of Revelation. If you were joined with us last week, you'll know that Pastor Chris started us off on our series on the book of Revelation. She reminded us very clearly that this book, the Revelation, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Would you say that with me this morning? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Primarily, it's not about beasts and things and bowls of wrath and angels blowing trumpets and earthquakes and famines, although those are important things and elements within the book. Primarily, Pastor Chris reminded us that this is a book revealing Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. That's something I can get excited about. I don't know about you. Something I get excited about. We're preaching this series in Revelation. Some of you may wonder why. Because you've told us to. We sent out a survey, and uh, the majority came back. Um, we would like you to speak about topics of the end time, topics of last day events, Revelation. Um, and I imagine it's because of all of the events that are happening around us. And so we are your servants. We do as you tell us. And we are studying the book of Revelation. So... I have a privilege of, of uh, going there with you today. I'd like to start where Pastor Chris ended last Sabbath, the first chapter in the book of Revelation. 
And if you don't have a Bible, there are plenty of Bibles there in the pews in front of you if you'd like to take one out. Um, it's also going to be on the screen here behind me. First chapter in verse 17, John writes this. He says, When I saw him, him being Jesus, uh, unbelievable revelation of, of this picture of Jesus. Um, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, three together, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Do not be afraid. I want to emphasize again that when you and I open the book of Revelation, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, fear should not be present. It may be. It may be. But I don't think God designs it to be. Do not be afraid. Even though John was having an, an unbelievable revelation of horrific things that were happening, of beasts and dragons that he had probably a hard time to write in words how he, how he pictured them, the message of Jesus Christ to him was, do not be afraid. And that's something that we want loud and clear to come out as we talk and open up, open up the book of Revelation, fear is not something that we want to be around. Do not be afraid. Talking about fear, I um, had an opportunity the last, the first part of this week, Sunday through Tuesday, to go um, for a pastor's retreat up in Forest Falls, a beautiful place. Some of, some of you may live up that direction. Absolutely beautiful, fresh air. Oh, it was nice. Um, one afternoon, they gave us some free time. We could go out and... Uh, uh, just be with God, spend some time in prayer and, and uh, considering um, our relationship with him. That was a great time. I looked on the map there. I'd never been um, on any hikes around, um, around the camp there. We were at, uh, what's the name of that camp? Forest Home? Forest Home Camp. And uh, there was a hike, Hidden Falls. I thought, that's it. It was, said it was challenging, um, two or so miles. I was like, all right, put on my hiking boots. Took off. Started out as a nice, wide path. And I thought, man, this isn't challenging. Come on. Mile into it, it turned into a little goat trail. I thought, now nah, this is more like it. Yeah. Started to weave around, and all of a sudden, I, I could hardly see the trail. It was just a faint little line through, and it started to go down this gully, this valley, down towards the river. And I started to slip and slide, and I started to get real excited. Woo, you know, we're talking. And I started to feel like I was 10 years old again, you know, that feeling. You're on an adventure, you're exploring, and uh, all of a sudden I, I uh, dislodged a big boulder and it went rolling down the hill, and crum, 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 poosh, splashed into the river. It's like, cool. <laughs> I thought, I better not throw any more. I got down to the river and uh, looking around, it was, it was beautiful, um, having a nice time. All of a sudden, I hear in the middle of the wilderness, a siren. And, and it started going off. I mean, it went off for maybe like 30 seconds. And uh, you know the thoughts that went through my mind, didn't you? Right? And I heard, and someone came over the megaphone. They had a megaphone there. All you Adventists up in the hills, we know where you are. Do not run. Do not hide. We're coming after you. 
Somebody once told me that they were just saying that this is an emergency test of the broadcast, but I swear that's what I heard. I, I looked around, I was, I was uh, and, these, and these stories, you know, when you're a kid, 10 years old, 12 years old, you know, or time of trouble, I had with me a bag of trail mix, a bottle of water, I didn't take Chris's advice and pack a whole backpack, but I had these things and I thought, well, I can live for three or four weeks, right, on this, yeah, I can do that, running from the, the, the yeah, you know these stories, and I have to admit, I was a little bit, a little bit fearful, I said, hey, you're crazy. I'm going to do it. I'm going to stay out here for three weeks. Well, at supper time, I was back at camp. And uh, it made me think. Revelation, fear, stories of all these things. Jesus says loud and clear, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. No matter what happens, no matter what tragedies may strike, no matter where you may be living, whether you're in the city or whether you're in the mountains, do not be afraid. That's loud and clear. Well, we're moving into um, to the next part of his letter here. And uh, John is writing to the churches because Jesus told him to. After Jesus shows himself to John, he tells him to write down everything he's seen and, and tells him to send it to the seven churches. And here are some important points when we think about this. First is that revelation or prophecy, it comes to people, specific people, real people, in real places, in real times. Revelation was not initially written for you and I. Revelation was initially written for people living in John's time. And I think that's something important for you and I to remember as we open up this book, because so often we skip right to our day, and we think, hey, what's going on in our world? How is John talking to us? We first, I think, need to slow down and say, hey, what is John talking? What, what did it mean to his people in his day, in his time? But also, this message is for you and I today. Because at the end of each message to each church, at the bottom there, there's some, there's some words. Every message ends this way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. And you and I this morning, I believe God desires us to hear what he's saying to the churches. So it's for all people, in all times, in all places. It's timeless. And... Also, we notice that God's revelation isn't necessarily for an individual. It's for a church. It's for a group of people. God doesn't reveal himself individually to John and say, this is to give you strength and encouragement as you're on the Isle of Patmos there. You need to know that I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. No, he says, you see this message, you hear this vision, go tell my people. Send it to my people. Revelation, prophecy, is for God's people everywhere. And... Uh, it's for his churches, and as we'll see as we go through the churches, the churches are anything but perfect. And uh, I doubt they ever will be um, until Christ comes again. Well, we're going to begin with the first church that John writes to, and uh, we won't have time to go through all the churches. Um, Isaac's going to catch another church next week. But uh, we're going to look at the church of Ephesus. Chapter 2 starts out with the church of Ephesus. Ephesus. 
Um, first of all, where was this city? When you think about Ephesus, it was located in ancient Asia Minor, what today we know as the country of Turkey. It was located on the Mediterranean Sea. And here you see the location of actually all seven of the churches that John writes to. As you can see, Patmos, the little island, is there to the left out in the Mediterranean. It's a small island that functioned as a, uh, a penal colony, um, the Alcatraz of Asia Minor, if you will. It was a religious political prisoner, uh, John, the Apostle John, that wrote this letter. Ephesus was known as a city for its many prosperous trades, especially prostitution. It was a thriving playground for the rich and famous. But a late century A.D., late first century A.D., it was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, fairly large. The Romans had made Ephesus an administrative center for the whole province of Asia. So it was a bustling, happening place. A lot of people coming, coming and going, a lot of trade, a lot of activity. There were some major theaters built there for the large productions and gladiator contests. The citizens of Ephesus used the Great Theater, which uh, seated about 25,000 people. From the seats of this theater, you had a spectacular view of the harbor of Ephesus, which actually today is completely filled in with silt and is about six miles from the port now, the city of Ephesus, from where the ocean is. The most famous structure in the city of Ephesus was a temple that took over 120 years to build a temple to the Greek goddess Artemis. As you can tell from looking at this picture, she was also known as Diana by the Romans. Uh, Artemis is, um, well, she's known as the mother of fertility, as you can imagine from the picture. The provider of childbirth and overseer um, of motherhood. She was also known by the Romans as the, uh, the goddess of the hunt. The Antipater of Sidon, who he was the one that compiled the list of the seven wonders of the ancient world, described the temple this way. I have set my eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots, and a statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis, that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. It's in a majestic temple. Imagine, commanded the attention of all its inhabitants, all the inhabitants of Ephesus. And you can imagine the religious practices and ceremonies held within and around this temple were quite, well, let's just say it might have been a conglomeration of Club 215, the Spearmint Rhino, and Flesh, with a few religious priests mixed in, and the ladies weren't there just to look at. There was quite some demonstrations of physicality, sexuality, and uh, all kinds of things. Today, only one lone column remains of the temple. And it was to this city, imagine, to this city, where the Apostle Paul came 
on his second missionary journey. It was in the late 30s, 30 AD that is. You can read the story in the book of Acts, the 19th and 20th chapters there. Can you imagine this bustling city, the temple there, all of the worship going on, and here comes a man proclaiming that God came in human form. He lived among us and he died and he was resurrected. I don't know if that's a job that I would have asked for or I would accept if it was given to me, but Paul did. And it's amazing. You can read through his stories in the book of Acts there of, of, of uh, how the, uh, the people who worshipped at this temple, especially the silversmiths who was making the idols and everything, they got pretty ticked off because the people weren't uh, coming and buying their idols anymore. They were starting to follow this man Paul and, and uh, his God and his religion. And so they got the whole mob together and said they filled that stadium that you saw, 25,000 people or more. They were all standing. And it says, for hours they just shouted, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Shouting this, a mob of people for hours. Some amazing stories of faith, of strength, of hope in the early Christian church there. Well, it's to the same church that tradition holds that the Apostle John and along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, because you remember on the cross, Jesus says, John, this is my mother. Take care of her. And so tradition holds that John, along with Mary, went to the city of Ephesus to live, and they actually lived there the rest of their lives, um, besides the time that John was exiled. And uh, there's actually a little hill there in the ancient city of Ephesus where they believe John is buried, and there's a church of St. John there on the hill. It's to this city that John is writing the letter. And John was the overseer of that church. He was the overseer of, they, they presume, most of the churches in that province. The pastor. He was a resident pastor. And so I can only imagine what it must have been like for John as he hears, as he hears Jesus talking, giving him this revelation, for him to be writing it down. And the first church that he starts with is John's home church. That's where he lives. And I can imagine that it must have perked up John's ear. What's Jesus going to say about my church? What message does he have for my church? And so Jesus starts to speak, and we pick it up in verse 1 there, chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now the word angel can be, can be translated many different ways. Messenger, um, overseer, um, elders, um, could be the people that are taking care of the church. Um, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. The very first picture that Jesus paints to John is this picture of Jesus. A Jesus who is doing something very immediate within the church. He's walking among the lampstands, and the lampstands is symbolic of the churches there. He's walking among them, and he's holding the seven stars in his hands. Jesus seems to be wanting to give this church of Ephesus the picture, the reassurance that he is present in their midst. When they meet together in their worship services, he is there walking among them. When they live and they talk and they breathe and they eat, Jesus is there present with them. He is there. 
And he wants the church to know that. He, um, it's interesting, if you scan through the rest of the churches there that he's writing to, each church he takes at the very beginning, um, and there's a description of Jesus, and he takes it actually from the first chapter that John sees this description of Jesus, and he takes a portion of that, starting with verse 12, a portion of that, and he gives it to each of the churches. Each of the ter- churches, he gives a different description of himself. And I don't know if that, if I'm just making more of it than it seems like, but it seems to me that Jesus is telling the churches that they each have a special revelation of who he is, a different revelation than who he is, and that it's okay. They see him differently. And I think that's an important thing for you and I to remember here today because there are churches around the globe And our tendency is to tell them and to encourage them to see God and to see Jesus the way that we do right here in North America in Calamasa. But the picture that they have of Jesus and that Jesus has given to them may be different. And that's okay. Because all of these pictures of Jesus together make up a whole composite of who he is. It's kind of like the body of Christ. We are not complete in and of ourselves, although we're pretty nice people right here. We're not. We are complete only as we join together with our brothers and sisters all around the world. And I, can I say this, but it's not just the Adventist church? Can I say that? It's Christians, people who are followers of Jesus all around the world. And that together we paint a beautiful, complete picture of who Jesus is. It's a beautiful thing. He, he begins his, his message to the church this way in encouragement. And it's interesting, as you read through the churches, and I invite you to take some time this next week to do that, you'll notice that there's some definite components in each one of these messages to the churches. There's a component of Jesus' description of himself. There's another component where Jesus commends the church for um, what, what they're doing well and, uh, and how they're growing. He also has a component in the message where he rebukes the church, and he reveals to them areas Um, areas of their weakness. And then he presents to them a picture or a promise of what it will be like when the churches, you and I, his his followers, uh, overcome. So these three different components, um, this first one here to the the church of Ephesus starts with verse 2. I know your deeds, Jesus says. He knows them intimately. He knows them inside and out. I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And down to verse 6. Down to verse 6. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So Jesus is commending them for some certain things. And as we listen to the description of the church, I mean, it sounds like a church that I would want to be a part of. It sounds a little bit like Calamasa. Hardworking, some hardworking people, um, some perseverant people, some people that have been through some pretty severe trials and they persevere. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men and you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. A church that is discerning a church that just doesn't accept everything that's said from up in the pulpit, 
or out in the Bible study groups, but a church who, who, who is composed of individuals who go back and search and study for themselves and discover for themselves what is true and what is false. It's a discerning church. It's a church composed of a lot of, a lot of great qualities. And this thing about hating the practices of the Nicolaitans, I'm not sure what the Nicolaitans are. I'm not sure many people do. There is some thought about that they might be connected with Gnosticism. And Gnosticism basically is the combination of um, some spirituality but also some, uh, some pagan rituals. And really your body is not anything you need to worry about. So you can do whatever you wish with your body, but your soul is what's important. And uh, it kind of worked really well in their day, in their culture. Um, it kind of works really well in our day, in our culture. Um, and so I think this may be some of the things that, that uh, Jesus is, is that hate the practices of, of people that claim that you can do whatever you want and, and God is okay with that. Um, so he, he describes this church and, and he commends them for all these good works. Then he goes on and, and he goes on to rebuke. And here's where you and I start to cringe a little bit because rebuke, I don't know, I, I don't, you like rebuke? You like when somebody says, Man, you're messed up. What are you thinking? How could you have done that? And have you married? <laughs> you may know some rebuke. Hopefully, though, hopefully the rebuke that you encounter in your life has been rebuke that's based and grounded in love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. Some of you may have grown up in environments where the rebuke wasn't grounded in that. And so when you hear rebuke, it brings up a lot of negativity for you. And you approach it with, what are you, what are you rebuking me for? Forget you, and it turns you off. Because rebuke is associated with anger, with pain, with rejection. But with God, it's never that way. With God, his rebuke is always couched and surrounded and, and enveloped in his love, in his compassion, in his desire for the absolute best for his children. That's where God, God's rebuke emerges from. It's very straightforward. I held this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent... I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Removing the lampstand, basically the church is a lampstand. I'll take your church away. It's pretty serious. I often wonder when John heard this message for the first time, what he must have thought. Because really this is his church that Jesus is talking about. And I don't know about John, but as a pastor here in Calamasa, I kind of feel a little responsibility for the spiritual growth of, of the people that come to this church. And I imagine Pastor Chris and Pastor Ken and Pastor Isaac, we all kind of have that. And I wonder when John heard this rebuke, if it was difficult for him, that his church, the people in his church, they've forsaken their first love and especially if you know any of the writings of John. Have you studied John much? John's writings are filled with love. 
It's all about the love of God and how we need to live in love. And whoever says that they love God but hates his brother is a liar. And John wrote multitude of things about God as love. And here he has a message coming to him and to his church. You've forsaken your first love. I don't know. It might have been difficult. I, um, I wonder what they must have thought it meant, though, to them. What did it mean? No clear answer. I could take a guess at it, though. Could it be that some of their greatest strengths actually contributed to their greatest weakness? Let me explain. He commends them for their hard work, for their diligence, for their perseverance, for their ability to discern between right and wrong. That's what he commends them for. And yet I wonder if in their practices of these things that they had thrown themselves into their work of the church, into, into preserving the truths of, of Scripture and, of, and the truths about Jesus Christ, that as they threw themselves into that and, and discerning, that they actually began to build a fortress, build up walls, that instead of reaching out to people in love, they were trying so hard to preserve what they had and to preserve the truths that they had and actually began to lose their love and their fervor for reaching people who needed that love the most. And I wonder if in doing this, they were creating what the Pharisees and, and, and people in Jesus' day were rebuked for as well. You whitewashed tombs. You look so good on the outside. You have everything together. You do all the right things. But inside, you're growing cold. You're growing cold. I don't know. I don't know. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't just rebuke, and, and this is true throughout the scriptures, throughout the whole Bible. He doesn't just rebuke. He doesn't just reveal your sin and then step back and say, yeah, deal with that. He doesn't. He steps in and he says, okay, you have this. You have this problem. You've forsaken your first love. But here's what you can do about it. And there's kind of three things that come out. And uh, summarize in one word each. The first is remember, verse 5. Remember the height from which you have fallen. There's something about love. When love grows cold, it happens in marriages sometimes. It happens with divorce. People grow apart. Love grows cold. They turn to each other one day and they say, who is this person that I'm living with? I don't even know them anymore. Love grows cold. You know, one of the things that I, I think is a God-ordained thing to renew and rekindle love in a, in a relationship where it's grown cold is to remember. When was the last time you sat down with your wife and told stories to each other about the first days? When was the first time that he asked you out for a date if you're married? When was 
your love strong and alive and remember those stories. In your relationship with God, it works the same way. It works the same way. Do you remember how old you were when you first understood the depth of God's love for you? Do you remember where you were, what time in your life it was? Maybe you were a child. Maybe you were a teenager. Maybe, maybe it was just last year. I don't know. But do you remember what it was like when you first decided to give your whole heart and life and soul and everything to God and say, I'm going to follow you? Do you remember what that was like inside? Remember. God says, remember. It's throughout the whole book. Why? Because you and I are pretty thick-headed sometimes and we, we forget. Remember the Sabbath day. Remember my loving kindness. Remember what I have done. Remember the good deeds in the past. Remember. I think it's beneficial for you and I to spend time. What is that? There's a quote from Ellen White. Doesn't she say something like that? It would be good for us to spend, what? A thoughtful hour remembering Jesus on the cross. Remember. Remember the height from which you have fallen. The second thing, repent. A lot of times relationships grow cold. There are things that cause the coldness to grow. Maybe not intentional. Could just be busyness. Could just be working long days and coming home and just crashing in front of the TV and then falling into bed. Could be having kids come along and all your time and energy and attention is just wrapped up in them. and A whole multitude of things. Maybe not bad, but things that causes love to grow cold. God says... Repent. Repent. It's not as harsh words as it sounds. It simply means to turn around. You've got this way of living, this pattern of living. Turn around. Do things differently. Try different things. Write an email to your wife and say, Hey, baby, let's go out for dinner tonight. Do something differently. Turn off the TV for a couple of nights in a row. Take your Bible and go spend some time with God. Remember and repent. Make some changes. And thirdly, remember, repent, and do the things you did at first. Redo. Redo. Do the things you did at first. Remember what those things were that, that, that built that love that encourage that love. Do those things again. And you'll be amazed at the love that will return into your life. Do those things. Jesus goes on in um, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He ends every message to his church with a promise. A promise that this is eternal life. This is Eden restored. To be able to eat from the tree of the fruit, the fruit of the tree of life. The, he, the, the leaves, it says later on in Revelation, the leaves of this tree bring the healing to the nations. 
It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. One of the symbols that um, impacted me greatly and, and uh, basically encapsulates, encapsula- encapsulates? Yeah, that's good enough. Covers, uh, whatever. The, 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 the genre of this church, the, the feel of this church is, uh, is a couple of symbols um, that you probably know and have seen before. This is what revelation means actually right here. To reveal. Yeah, I just wanted to do that. You've seen these symbols before. Maybe you haven't if this is your first, uh, first year in Calamasa. I don't, I don't know that we've uh, shown these recently. But these are the symbols that Calamasa has held dear for a long time. A pitcher, a cup, a saucer, and then a plate. And it's a beautiful image um, because it describes, describes the, the, the desire, I, I believe, that God has for each one of us. The pitcher um, represents God, and it's filled. God's love. And as we ask God to pour out himself into our lives, to pour out his love into our lives, he does so. And when we spend the time doing the things we did at first, when we first saw the light, when we first felt the love of God, it's God's love filling our hearts. And as, and as we allow God's, God's love to fill our hearts, it can't help but overflow. And as it overflows, it overflows into the saucer. And the saucer represents those people that are closest to us, our spouses, our, our friends, our, our children, it overflows into their lives. And there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a flowing love that happens. And as, as God continues to pour out his love into our hearts, it continues to overflow and overflows into the plate. And the plate underneath it represents the community that we live in, the people in our neighborhoods, the world around us. And it goes and it goes and it goes. And this love of God, this love of God, overflows into our communities because you and I take the time to remember and to repent and to redo those things that keep us on fire and connected with God. Um, How does love grow cold? In the illustration, it's simple. It only happens if God stops pouring his love. And that never happens on God's end. It only happens on ours. To him who overcomes, the promise is, I will give to eat of the tree of the fruit of life. Now, I don't know what kind of fruit you think will be there. Conversation with my dad. He tells me that there's going to be durian on it. I tell him durian is the fruit of death, not life. I prefer pomelos and mangoes. But I love this word picture that Ellen White paints of this tree from the booklet, A Word to the Little Flock. This is what she says. Here we saw the tree of life and the throne of God. Out of the throne came a pure river of water. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, 
And on one side of the river was a trunk of a tree, and on the trunk on the other side of the river, both were of pure, transparent gold. At first, I thought I saw two trees. I looked again and saw they were united at the top in one tree. So it was the tree of life on either side of the river of life. Its branches bowed to the place where we stood, and the fruit was glorious, which looked like gold mixed with silver. I don't know about you, Church of Calamasa. I can't wait for that. I can't wait for that. And I know God can't wait for that. Remember your first love. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your words. We thank you for the reminder of hope, of strength, and of encouragement. We thank you for the rebuke. And I thank you for your spirit that speaks to each one of us in different ways. Lord, I thank you most of all for your gracious, unending love and your desire to pour out that love into each one of our lives to fill us so completely. God, to that we say thank you. To that we sing. To that we rejoice. Because we love only because you first love us. Thank you so much, Jesus. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.